Good morning, everyone. I want to add my, uh, my dittos, if you will, to what Pastor John just said about the, uh, the fall festival yesterday. It was, it was so well done, and uh, we are just always impressed by the creativity that God has blessed Maranatha with, so uh, kudos to everyone who did the planning, the preparation, the, the setting up, and then the, the cleaning up as well. That's, that's wonderful. I was also thinking, as we were reading the, through the Nicene Creed, I remember learning in our church history class in seminary, there's a one line, the reason why it was rewritten uh, in 381 AD, I believe, is that one line that we read uh, about Jesus being one substance with the Father. There was a lot of controversy over that, of whether he was one essence, one substance, or whatever. And I remember my, uh, my church history professor saying, fistfights broke out in the council as they uh, were deciding this. So just imagine, that's how they did theology back in the day. It was like fistfights over, <laughs> over, the, <clears throat> over the meaning of a Greek word. We don't do that nowadays, do we? Uh, <clears throat> well, <laughs> let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for being able to bless one another um, through the creative gifts that you have given to us. We thank you for a a wonderful time yesterday of, of just seeing activities and crafts and, and children, a lesson, Lord God, with regard to uh, how you worked through the scripture, through the word of God, to open the heart of Martin Luther uh, in helping us to rediscover what it means to be saved by faith, to be justified by faith alone as a free gift of God's grace. We thank you also, Lord God, for creeds which ground our faith and give us historical roots and a foundation on which to build not only our faith, but our life, Lord God, indeed your church. We pray as well, Lord God, that you would now, as we come to hear your word preached, having confessed our sin and received a word of forgiveness and absolution, that you would, as you do, Lord God, whenever your word is preached, send out your light and truth, that they would lead us, that they would bring us to your holy place and to your dwelling, that we would see your glory, uh, that we would be overwhelmed and overcome by it and then reminded that like uh, the prophet Isaiah, you have taken a burning coal and you have touched it to our lips, to our heart, to our mind, and to our soul, and you have made us holy, 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 all through the finished work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We turn now, Lord God, to hear your word spoken through the prophet Zechariah. We ask, Lord God, for open hearts and minds to hear, to receive, to understand and to apply. Lord God, we ask and pray for this in the name of the one who has done all for us that we might be saved and look forward with great hope and confidence and anticipation to life everlasting and the life to come in your presence and with the saints who have gone before. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're walking through uh, Zechariah chapter 2, which is, comprises the entirety of his third vision. And last week we looked at the first scene, the first act, if you will, in that vision, verses 1 to 5. This week we're going to unpack uh, what is in verses 6 through 9, the, the second scene. But before we do that, let's hear what the scripture says uh, regarding this third vision. Zechariah writes, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. 
And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. And then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now, as we have learned uh, last week, this vision of, uh, of Zechariah unfolds in three scenes, all flowing from a single theme, which is that God inspires hope by choosing to dwell among his people. The other thing I, I want to continue to emphasize is to see that all the visions that Zechariah has, all eight of them, are connected with one another. That one uh, vision leads to the next, so that the following vision builds on the preceding vision. So the first vision that Zechariah had about a man riding on a red horse and uh, other riders doing reconnaissance work and then the Lord assuring the people that he would again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem, that becomes the baseline not only for the visions but for the entire book. And then that second uh, vision that Zera, uh, Zechariah has of the, uh, the four craftsmen who come to terrify and cast down the nations that terrified and cast down Israel, that is how God begins to comfort Zion. That's how he begins to comfort his people, by showing them that he knows that they have been mistreated, and he will in turn punish those who punish them. And now in this third vision, God is going to expand on how he's going to choose Jerusalem, what that looks like. And so in the first scene, where God inspires hope by promising to dwell with, uh, in the presence of his people through the majestic power of his presence, there's that glorious promise that he makes that Jerusalem is going to be inhabited as villages, uh, multitudes of people and lives stuck in it. It'll be an ever-expanding, ever-growing city without walls because he himself will be the wall or fire around it as well as the glory in her midst so that as Jerusalem the city of God expands because the people of God, Zion, are dwelling in it. That city spreads out, and there's this wall of protection as well that it, that it expands as the city grows, and that the glory of God becomes more and more magnified and manifest in it. That's the first scene. The, the second scene uh, we see in verses 6 through 9, where God inspires hope by revealing the, the, what I call the parental character of his vengeance that he promises not only to save his people from their enemies, but then he also promises to educate and to disciple his people in what it means to know 
the Lord of hosts and to worship him. And then in the last scene, which we'll get to next week, God inspires hope by declaring the irresistible attraction of his grace that amazingly enough, God has a plan to include and welcome into this holy city and this holy nation not only those who are born uh, natively into the kingdom of Israel, but those who are from outside, the Gentiles, they themselves will join themselves to the Lord of hosts and be part of that multitude of people in the city that will help expand and grow as the, the city grows and expands. And so you have this missional tone in this third vision that the, the whole uh, motivation for um, our understanding is, is seeing that God is not simply interested in preserving and gathering just the people of Israel to himself, but he has an expansive view for, for them and the world. And so you can make a very strong case that what we see here in, in uh, this third vision of Zechariah is an anticipation, if you will, of the future character and mission of the church. So you think, for example, just in the way that the visions have unfolded. We have a church, right, that is the community of people gathered and protected by God the Father through the work of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have God the Father and God the Son now filling the people in that city with God the Holy Spirit, who is the indwelling glory of God in their midst. And then you have uh, God the Spirit filling the people, so they can carry out uh, the Great Commission in the name of God the Son and go out then and plunder the nations. Plunder the nations not with sword of steel and iron and bronze, but with the sword of the Spirit, which is the gospel, which is the power of God for everyone who believes. So in this way, the many nations will join themselves to the Lord as is prophesied in Zechariah, and then we see it again, not only in the book of Acts, but ultimately at the, uh, in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 5.9, where in his vision of glory, John sees a multitude, he says, of ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So this third vision anticipates the, the missional character of the church. It is an expanding community. But in addition to... Uh, anticipating the future of the church, this second vision also anticipates the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what I mean by that. So just do a little bit of a history lesson. If you were to go back and read the, the first chapter of Ezra, because the other thing to keep in mind is that there are contemporaries here. So Zechariah has his ministry at the same time as the prophet Zechariah, uh, Haggai. Haggai comes before Zechariah. They were serving at the same time in Jerusalem. About 70 years later or so, another fellow, two fellows arrive on the scene. One is Ezra, the other is Nehemiah. So if you want to know what does post-exilic Israel look like, Ezra and Nehemiah are sort of, if you will, volume two. Haggai and Zechariah would be volume one of what life is like after the exile. In Ezra 1, the Bible tells us that when the second wave of exiles come to Jerusalem somewhere around 458 B.C., they came to rebuild the temple. That's, but that's Haggai's mission. Haggai's mission is to encourage people to build and rebuild the temple.
Let me see. Yep, okay, there I am. <laughs> so in, in Ezra 1, we're told that when these, the second wave of exiles return to Jerusalem, um, they come with vessels of silver, gold, goods, beasts, and costly wares, that Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. The Bible then also says that Cyrus appointed the royal treasurer to number the items that were brought to Jerusalem. These included 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. Now, why do I tell you this? I tell you this for one simple reason, that the, this third vision of Zechariah anticipates the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of all the items that are listed, that are brought with this second wave of exiles into Jerusalem, there is one item on that list that is conspicuous by its absence. The Ark of the Covenant. It is not listed on among these items. In fact, when Jerusalem fell to Babylon, the Ark simply disappeared. We don't read of it ever again. If it's lost, nothing is said in the scriptures of it being found. If it was destroyed, which would make sense, because if you're an invading nation and you want to destroy the morale of the people you're conquering, one thing that you make sure to do is destroy the very thing that gives them their, their ethnic and spiritual identity, which would be the ark housed by the temple. They destroyed the temple and likely destroyed the ark. And again, like I said, the ark is never mentioned again in any of the post-exilic prophets or the exilic prophets. Moreover, when the second temple is completed, when you read about it in Nehemiah, nothing is said about the Ark of the Covenant being installed in the Holy of Holies. Now, why is that important? It's important because there's no temple in Zechariah's vision. No temple is mentioned. No Ark is mentioned in his vision. That when God says, I will be the glory in her midst, what he's referring to is his own person his own character, his own nature, his own being. It's because the, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the glory presence of God, is going to be fulfilled not through the reconstruction and rebuilding of a physical thing, but through the incarnation of the Word of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's what John the Gospel writer means when he says, the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt literally tabernacled or templed among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the one and only Son of God, full of grace and truth. This is later confirmed by the writer to the Hebrews when he writes about Jesus, and he calls Jesus the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That's Hebrews 1.3. And that also then lies at the heart of one of my favorite uh, passages in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, in talking about the, the glory of God being manifest through the word, Paul writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Zechariah's third vision anticipates the coming of Christ as the glory of God in human flesh, 
who is the, the physical manifestation of the temple and the very ark of God upon which the blood of Christ is spilt in order to make atonement for our sins. And so as the glory of God in our midst, as looking forward to this, Jesus becomes the very fulfillment of what Zechariah is talking about. He is, if you will, the glory presence of God. He is the mercy seat, who is also the blood of the sacrifice. And so knowing that imagery, that there's this twofold thing of anticipating the missional character of the church and anticipating the, the ministry of Jesus, there is an urgency then when we get to verses 6 through 9, the way that the prophet now shifts gears up, up. He says, get up and flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord, up. Escape to Zion and you who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. Knowing that there's this, this great sense of um, anticipation with regard to the ministry that is to take place. The command is given to the, the people there living in the land of uh, Babylon, the, the Jews. The initial command is, is given to them. And here it's called the land of the north. We know that Babylon fell to Persia by this time. But in the Bible, Babylon becomes a metaphor. Babylon becomes a symbol for a world system that is in opposition to God, in opposition to his people. So let's update it a little bit. Right? We don't live physically in Babylon, but we live in Babylon. If, in fact, Babylon is defined as a worldview of a post-truth culture in which we live. We live in a post-truth truth culture. Uh, Babylon is, if you will, cancel culture. You don't agree with the prevailing attitudes, opinions, and values. You suffer the consequences of that. Babylon is a, a mindset that is obsessed with the acquisition, the maintenance, and the use of power. At every level of society, every level of government, every level of business, including uh, the military, Babylon is a mindset. It's a worldview. It's, I would even go so far as to say that Babylon is a, a civil religion. It has the appearance of godliness, but denies its power. So the command that is given to the Jews still living in Babylon is a command that is also given to us in our day and age, that we are to escape, says uh, Zechariah, to Zion. Now, you may be asking yourself, why Zion and not Jerusalem? I mean, if Jerusalem is a city that is protected by a wall of fire all around, why doesn't God say, go escape to Jerusalem? Well, remember, uh, Zion is another way of referring to the people of God. Zion is the community of the people of God that lives inside the city, that lives in the city surrounded by a wall of fire. Only citizens of uh, Zion can become citizens of Jerusalem, which would represent the church. So salvation, then, is not a result of living in the city. Salvation is not even a result of being born in the city. Salvation is, as Luther discovered and proclaimed as a way of uh, the dawning of the Reformation, the salvation is a result of being born again, into that city. So salvation is the result of trusting in the Lord uh, through whom we become part of the community 
of the redeemed living in that city. And it's an important thing to note that the, the call is to become part of the community inside that city. We tend to see salvation, particularly us modern types, because, and mainly because we're, we're Americans as well, with our attitude of sort of ingrained into us of being rugged individualists, we tend to view our salvation the same way. We see our salvation as a, as a personal experience that gives us the option of choosing whether or not to join a community. But the Bible teaches a completely different view. The Bible does teach that salvation is, in fact, a personal experience, but it's a personal experience that obligates us to become part of a community. The church is then a community that is united, not so much by our shared experience, but our shared faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we gain that experience of salvation, through whom we gain that experience of grace and forgiveness and mercy. So it is a fellowship wherein every member is committed to working out their salvation by intentionally covenanting with one another in the name of Christ inside the city which is surrounded by a wall of fire. And so the, the cry that goes out here at the beginning of verse 6 is to, is to basically change the way that you view the world. Change the way that you see the world. Change the way that you understand the world. The urgency of the command to flee Babylon is really twofold. There is the, the very real sense on the one hand that God is going to judge this, this nation, Babylon. He's going to judge a world that is hostile to him. And that judgment in Zechariah's case is very imminent and is coming. And from our side of things in the New Testament age, we look forward to a future judgment. We've read about it in the Nicene Creed. We even sing about it in our songs about having a hope for justice and mercy finally taking over and reigning and spreading throughout the earth, that God indeed will judge the nations. That's one part of the urgency. But there's a second part of it as well. And it's this, that Zechariah, and I think most uh, churches would fall in this category as well, face the, the same task. Zechariah faced the same task which confronted Moses um, remember when God uh, sent Moses to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt? You know, we have this idea that the Israelites would wake up every morning before they went out to make bricks without straw. Before they you know, woke up, they would have their morning devotions and they would, pray to, they would pray to Yahweh. It's not the case. If anything, they were probably more familiar with the gods of the Egyptians than they were the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when Moses is sent to deliver them, he has to educate them. He has to disciple them. He has to, he has to catechize them in what it means to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what it means to worship, to serve, and to believe in God and God alone as the one and only true real God. And so the command that is given by the angel of the Lord here in, uh, in verse 6 um, makes two things very clear. Right? He wants the Jews living in Babylon to get out of Babylon. But more importantly, he wants to get Babylon out of the people. They have been, remember, they've been living there for 70 years. And after 70 years, they have been immersed in a culture that is contrary 
to what they were brought up with when they were in Israel. And so like the Jews living in exile, in slavery rather, in Egypt, they would have been surrounded by these pagan gods. They would have been surrounded and lived in a culture, even though they had their own community, they would have come to maybe understand, well, maybe you know, God is, is this, you know, Yahweh is, is on the same level as these other Babylonian gods. And the call is to come out from that mindset that many of the, of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem were born in Babylon, who, you know, like their ancestors, were slaves in Egypt. They needed to learn what it meant to be Jewish. They needed to be taught how to think like a Jew, how to worship like a Jew, how to live as people who served and followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when I say that we see in this second scene that our hope is in the parental character of God's vengeance, there's a double edge to that. Because on the one side, it is God as a parent coming to defend his children, coming to punish those who punish his children. But there's also, and we heard a little bit about this in, in our Confession of Sin, that as a parent, God must now also judge his people. He must work out of us what culture has worked into us. And so as a parent, he must save us, if you will, from a, a, a wrong worldview, a wrong way of understanding the world. He has to train us not to trust in what culture says is right, or get our values from culture, but to get our values from the, the scriptures, the word of God. That we are trusting him to judge our hearts and to teach us what it means to think and to worship and to live as people who follow him as the one and only true God. In other words, we need to learn the ABCs of our faith. We need what's called catechesis. Now what's catechesis? Very simply, it's it really is a function of discipleship. Catechesis is about learning uh, the ABCs of our faith. It's about learning what we believe and why. And the goal of catechesis, the goal of this instruction, much in the same way that Paul tells Timothy, the goal of our instruction is that we might learn how to think biblically and act Christianly. Catechesis, then, I want to look at it from a biblical perspective, which is always a good thing. Catechesis is Moses giving the second reading of the law in Deuteronomy. Catechesis really is the prophets calling Israel back to a wholehearted faith in God. Catechesis is Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Catechesis is Jesus using parables to illustrate spiritual truths by drawing from images borrowed from everyday life. Catechesis is Paul's letter to the Romans. And we see the benefit of that catechesis, that discipleship, in Luther's transformation. When Luther stumbles upon Romans 1.16 and 17, and when he sees there, coming out of the scriptures, the righteous shall live by faith, you read his biography and he says, it's as if at that moment the doors of paradise opened and I was born again. His words. That's catechesis. It's the power of the word. And later on, Luther had invested so much trust and faith in the word that at the end of his life, as he was you know, receiving accolades for all that he had done, 
He is famous for saying one thing, which is, I did nothing. The Word did everything. That's catechesis. That's discipleship. That's allowing the Word to influence everything we see and everything we know and everything we understand about the world around us. Catechesis is the entire letter to the Hebrews, which which borrows and draws richly from the Old Testament to teach these believers these Jewish believers in Jesus, what it means to have Jesus as our great high priest. Catechesis is the letter that James, the brother of the Lord, writes. James, for you trivia buffs out there, I believe the letter of James has 108 verses. 54 of them are commands. Think about that. It's, it's, it's referred to as the most Old Testament, New Testament letter that we have. It reads like the book of Proverbs. So it's all about this instruction. It's this lifelong process is catechesis of learning to think less like someone living in Babylon and more like someone who's committed to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I spend so much time on this? Why is this so important? Why emphasize this? Well, there was an article published recently in the online edition of the Atlantic magazine. And it bears a very provocative title. Uh, The title is, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart, Christians Must Reclaim Jesus from His Church. That's a provocative title. It was written by a man named Peter Weiner. He interviewed several pastors uh, about the, uh, if you will, the the current state of the evangelical church in America. And I don't agree with necessarily everything that Weiner writes or concludes in the piece. However... In the piece, he includes this statement by a man named James Ernest, who is the vice president and editor-in-chief at Erdman's, which is a well-known publisher of Christian books. Ernest, in looking at the current state of the church, says this. Speaking about the spiritual health of the evangelical church, he writes, What we are seeing is a massive discipleship failure caused by a massive catechesis failure that the evangelical church in the United States over the last five decades has failed to form its adherence into disciples. So there's a great hollowness. The article also includes an observation by a man named Alan Jacobs, who is a distinguished professor of humanities in the honors program at Baylor University. And according to Jacobs, this hollowness is a result of Christians being catechized more by the surrounding culture than by the churches to which they belong. He says now, quoting from the article, culture catechizes. Culture teaches us what matters and what views uh, we should take about what matters. Our current political culture has multiple technologies and platforms for catechizing. Television, radio, Facebook, Twitter, and podcasts among them. People who want to be connected to their political tribe, people that think like them, people that they think are on their side, they subject themselves to its catechesis all day long, every single day, hour after hour. So concludes Jacobs, if people are getting one kind of catechesis half an hour per week in church and another for dozens of hours per week outside the church, Which one do you think will win? So here's my point. Since our culture catechizes us, and likely without us even being aware of it, then we must be very 
diligent to live, if you will, under the authority of Scripture. So I think what tends, this is what I mean. It's like we're, we're, we live under the Word. We see through the Word. What tends to happen is if this is culture, we place culture over the Scriptures and we read the Scriptures through our cultural worldview. We read Scripture through our politics. We read Scripture through our own desires, our own selfishness. But it's the other way around. It's Scripture over everything. It's Scripture coloring and tainting and influencing how we think, what we believe, and what we do. That's why catechesis is so important. And we can't help, we can't help being born in Babylon. We can't help being born into the midst of a culture that is by its very nature hostile to the gospel. So that's why we must be diligent in, in the words of the Apostle Paul is to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. So the command escape to Zion, that becomes the foundation not only for the character and mission of the church, it becomes the very foundation of our discipleship and of our catechesis. We can't help but live, or rather be born in Babylon, but by God's grace we can be born again into Jerusalem, into the Zion, the people of God. We don't have to live by the rules of our culture. We don't have to adopt its values. I think it was John Stott, when his, his little commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very good one. We have the, we have the condensed version that we're using in our CGs. There's a, a larger version, not very much larger, but a little larger. When it was originally published, it was referred to as countercultural Christianity, because that's, in fact, what we are. That, you know, unlike the, the people in Zechariah's day, we don't have a physical city into which we can retreat. We have the church. But the church is more a hospital than it is a fortress. It's a way station, an aid station. I think C.S. Lewis referred to it as that. Where people who have been damaged by the surrounding culture come for healing. Come to be, in the best sense of the word, remediated into thinking about life and God and other people through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of culture. That people are battered and bruised and abused enough outside the walls of the church, it ought not to take place within. If anything, we should be a, a, a people of grace and mercy and kindness. Ours, remember, is, is not a faith that is given to be practiced in isolation. Ours is a faith that's meant to be shared. Our mission is to go into the world that God has saved us from and be salt and light in the midst of it. We may live in Babylon, but we draw our identity, we draw our priorities, we draw our mission from Jesus Christ, not the culture in which we live. That's why our CGs have spent so much time on first learning what it means to be a healthy church member. It's why we're studying the, the Sermon on the Mount, so we can learn what it means to, 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 to flourish as we seek to follow Jesus. It's why we're committed to reading the historic creeds of the faith. It's why we place a high value on reading Scripture, studying Scripture, and applying Scripture. It's why so many of our parents, and I'm, I'm just incredibly impressed every time I, I hear and talk with parents, 
particularly of, of young children and teenage children, praying for their children, reading the Bible with their children, praying with their children, showing them by their own life and example what it means to follow Christ. Continue to do that because that's a form of catechesis. That's a form of discipleship. We may be born in Babylon. That can't be helped, but we can be born again into the city of God, into the people of God, so that our identity comes from God, who gathers us in his name to worship him and then to spread that good news outward. That's what I see coming out of this text when God calls us to flee so that we might, in the safety of his grace and mercy, then go back out. From time to time, the Lord must remind us that our identity is found in Christ more than in a physical place. We find our identity in the church by finding our identity in Christ. And then we carry that message outward. That's why we pray for revival. That's why we pray for spiritual awakening. Revival is really just a matter of sleepy believers waking up and realizing who they are in Christ. And we pray for an awakening so that as we are salt and light, as we are telling people about who Jesus is and what he has done, that they will realize that they are living in a world that is really a fantasy. And that the reality that they seek, the substance that they desire, is found in a relationship with Christ, which is found in living in a community of people who also follow Christ. And we know there's an urgency to our message because, as Zechariah says, there's judgment coming. Behold, he says in verse 9, I will shake my hand over them, meaning the nations, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. That, that expression, shake his uh, hand over them, that's a Hebrew expression. Rever- refers to a violent action that is taking uh, upon an opponent. I remember, um, <coughs> just from personal experience, just in terms of that as, a, as an expression, you know, shaking the hand over my, uh, my Sicilian grandmother, if ever she was talking about someone she disagreed with, she would just sort of, and then she would utter several invectives in a foreign language, which I didn't understand. But there is that sense in which God is like, this is, this is going to happen. The nations which made Israel serve them will now uh, serve Israel. The imagery comes from Exodus. When Pharaoh finally agreed to let Israel go after the, uh, the slaying of the firstborn on that first Passover night, we're told that the Lord had given people, uh, the, the, the people of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. That's uh, Exodus 12, 36. This all comes together when the angel of the Lord encourages everyone to flee the city, to come into Zion. Now, we know that the angel of the Lord is the, the, the pre-incarnate, pre-New Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And as I said, this third vision anticipates the ministry of Jesus because the only way to enter into that city is by faith in the one who died for the people in it. The Bible says that one day Jesus will come and he will shake his hands over the nation and that they will judge. We read about it in the Nicene Creed. We read about it in the Apostles' Creed that he will come to judge the living and the dead. But here is the amazing way that God works with us in the world. 
that before Jesus shakes his hand in judgment on the nations, he allows those nations to nail his hands to the cross. The very means by which he becomes their salvation and ours. In a glorious and gracious paradox, you see what God does. That Jesus plunders his enemies by dying for them. That the evil that they work against him is the good that God intends to come by means of salvation by grace through faith. That Jesus makes the nations serve him by serving them as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Before uh, the service started, you may have heard the, the worship team practicing a, a, a song. It's a new song, and I really want to thank uh, the team for learning it. Um, it's based on an old hymn. Uh, the song is called, uh, uh, in the newer version, it's called She Must and Shall Go Free. It's based on an old hymn called um, <clears throat> Mercy Speaks by Jesus' Blood, written by a man named William Gadsby. Um, the, the first three stanzas... Uh, go like this, that mercy speaks by Jesus' blood. Hear and sing, ye sons of God. Justice satisfied indeed, Christ his full atonement made. Jesus' blood speaks loud and sweet. Here all deity can meet, and without a jarring voice, welcome Zion to rejoice. Should the law against her roar, Jesus' blood still speaks with power. All her debts were cast on me. And she must and shall go free. God inspires hope by choosing to dwell among his people. He inspires hope by demonstrating the, the, the parental character of his vengeance. In this manner, Zechariah's third vision anticipates the ministry of Christ, that as the glory of God incarnate, as truth incarnate, Jesus is Son and Servant, Savior and Lord. He died for our sins so that we must and shall go free from God's judgment. He is and always will be the glory of God in our midst. The fire, the wall of fire all around to surround and protect his church always to the end of the age. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to further understand and apply your word. We thank you that your word is trustworthy and true, dependable and reliable, as is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, finished forever. Give us further insight, Lord God, into knowing that our debts have all been paid, all been cast on Christ, and in him we must and shall go free. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.